Greetings, cyberspace, and welcome to the Double Density Podcast. This is episode 18 with your hosts, Brian and Angelo. Angelo and I have been talking recently, and we've been enjoying uh, the threads we've been following down, the nostalgia hole about um, our childhoods and our technologies, especially console gaming. So in light of that, we decided that the first segments on this episode would be a list of our top five Super Nintendo games. So Angelo, I will not lie to you, I agonized over this list for a couple of hours at least. I don't know about you, but I spent a lot of time uh, working and refining and switching and adding. So uh, I think I have mine set and I hope you have yours set too. I had an easy time with number one and number two, a harder time choosing between three and four and which order those two would go in. And I had one uh, cart at number five that I completely switched out for something else uh, as of this morning, actually. Oh, wow. Okay. So like you just, uh, this is like up to the minute Angelo uh, hot takes. Oh, yeah. And uh, it was one of my previously honorable mentions. And now the other one's been uh, shuttled off to the honorable mention. And this one is now uh, number five, which you'll find out about. Uh, right away, right? Because we're going to do this in reverse uh, order. Correct. So we're going to do five to two honorable mentions, and then each of ours will be our number one and why. So do you want to start with your number five? Because I think my number five is going to surprise you. I, I, you mentioned that it would surprise me when we uh, came up with this idea, and I can't wait to hear what it is. So my number five is Super Mario All-Stars. I don't know if you played that one. I had the cart, definitely. And uh, it, I think it's probably one of the first uh, Re- quote-unquote HD remakes. Right, because I right? I never had a Nintendo. I only had a Super Nintendo. So to me, this was my way into one Lost Levels, two, and three. See, I had played all these games on the NES, including the Lost Levels, which had come out as uh, this weird import uh, that the video store used to uh, market as Super Mario Brothers 3. And we would all play it, and we were sorely disappointed because it was terrible compared to what we were expecting Super Mario 3 to be. So was the box an actual... Did it actually say, like, was it, like, a, a bootleg? Did it actually say Super Mario 3 on it? Or was there, like, a sticker, like, a handwritten yeah, sticker? Yeah, it was, like, a sticker was uh, printed on there with uh, the... On, and even the sticker on the actual uh, c- game, which was very different, right? Because the uh, Super uh, the Famicom, uh, Famicom had uh, much smaller cartridges, so you needed this weird uh, extender to put on it, and it had this... Uh, I guess, uh, textile actual uh, little ribbon on it you can pull and then you'd get the cart out because otherwise you wouldn't be able to pull out the cart. Right. So we would play that and we were, we were my friends would and I would uh, talk about how there were poison mushrooms and it was so hard and it, it was basically an extension of uh, World 8-4 from Super Mario Brothers. So it just, it, it's not like it's how most video games are where you first start out, it's easier. It just starts out as being really hard. So I had actually played all four of the games included on this, and one of them on there is my uh, number one uh, NES game, which would be Super Mario Bros. 3. Did you watch the Fred Savage movie, The Wizard? Well, if you wouldn't have interrupted me, I was about to say, I remember first seeing it in the movie The Wizard. A.K.A. a giant Nintendo commercial? It was a great Nintendo commercial. Although, like most movies uh did not even though it was aimed at video game crowds didn't really play video games properly there is no way you can control a game like that guy did with the power glove the power glove was garbage no it was rad firstly and secondly shouts out to bo bridges and christian slater bringing their nintendo around the country trying to chase down um their stepson which i was i sorely enjoyed that sort of um plot line of the movie where that you know they're getting better and better at the games that they were playing yeah, that was kind of fun. And uh, I actually, one of the stars of the movie is uh, one of my favorite singers. So she's, uh, she came uh, to be part of uh, Kyle O'Reilly. And uh, I'm speaking, of course, of Jenny Lewis. And she has some great music. Her last album was fantastic. So that's uh, Music Minute of the Day for Angela. <laughs> uh, so the Super Mario All-Stars came as part of... Um, it was the game that actually got me to buy the, the Super Nintendo because up until that point, I'd had just the, the Genesis. I um, decided to pick it up because it came as part of a bundle. Now, I can't remember if you had to mail out for it or what. I think it came with the Super Nintendo like on the side. I just can't remember what it was. 
uh, how it worked. I don't know if there was a refund you would get completely if you bought it, but I did remember getting it as part of my uh, Nintendo Super Nintendo package. So you got that and Super Mario World together. Exactly. Okay. And that was lots of gaming to do. Now, I had played a lot of Super Mario World with a friend of mine up until that point, but Super Mario All-Stars was actually pretty new. So, Brian, what's this uh, astounding number five you're going to give me that I'm going to be surprised about? So, my number five is Final Fantasy Mystic Quest, a.k.a. Final Fantasy USA, because of how easy it was for players to play. Well, that's not too surprising it's a final fantasy game it's it's a good type of game well i think it's a final fantasy i never actually played mystic quest okay uh i think once you play it, you'll understand so uh true story mystic quest actually taught me how to read english sentences uh because my parents had bought me uh the game uh i was fairly young i was five i think and i remember uh being able to read specific words clearly but not full sentences and not reading being able to read paragraphs and things like that and i remember one evening putting it in and then sitting there and then being able to um, then read the first couple of screens of the story when you start up the, your quest, right? So you do your, your character name and things like that. And then it proceeds to sort of tell you like the intro quest. Um, is Mystic Quest deserving of the pantheon of the greatest Final Fantasy games? No, not at all. But <laughs> it did help me in my personal growth, which I think is very interesting. And I mean, listen, any RPG that an eight-year-old can beat is not necessarily deserving any sort of title, but it does it does really hold a special place in my heart and feel the desire in me to play more RPGs. So for that, I think it deserves uh, like a big place on my list. So for me, that'd be number five. Well, that's a good reason to have it up there. Uh, it did help you learn how to read. Right now, my eight-year-old is uh, playing my old uh, Nintendo DS. She's playing the Professor Layton games on there, and she's having a lot of fun with those puzzles. I don't know if you ever actually played the Professor Layton games. I have not. Now they're 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 puzzle based, uh, basically, uh, sort of. Uh, I guess I could compare them sort of the the old Sierra adventure games, like the point clicks or the yeah, point sort the of. point and uh, actions. I guess point and trying to figure out what they want you to do with uh, some bizarre combination of things you've found and maybe not have found, and then you can't continue in the game. Point yeah, and point and click, and can I interact with said object a lot of the time too? Yeah. So let's continue on to my number four. Uh, this was uh, fluctuating between number four and number three. It is uh, up there with one of my favorite games, obviously, number four. Uh, but it's up there with one of my favorite games of all video games. Um, and th- the same could be said of uh, all five of these games on the Nintendo list, because the Super NES was probably one of my favorite systems. So this number four game is Earthbound. Oh, Interesting. Yeah, and I never actually found this game in any stores as much as I wanted to actually buy it. It was a very special NES, uh, Super NES game too because it came in a giant box. And I remember noticing that when I rented it, uh, one of the few times I rented it, it had its own Nintendo Power Guide with it because uh, I Nintendo thought it would be a little too hard for North American audiences to handle. So it came with an entire guide. And it was a novel among RPGs, it was, and it was a straight JRPG. You had uh, power-ups, you had the actual weapons that would each uh, be better or worse than the next one, and you would uh, be turn-based fighting with these weird monsters. The thing was, is that you weren't in some sort of fantasy land, you were in um, 1990X, I think it was one of those games where it had the 1990X type thing, you didn't know which year of the 90s you were in. But uh, you were a little kid, I think his name was Ness, and you would be fighting these monsters with baseball bats, yo-yos, you'd eat pizza, you'd have all kinds of fun stuff. You would call home to save your game. Your dad would put money in the ATM machine so you can get some money to buy all the goods. And uh, you would collect a party of different uh, kids in your neighborhood to be part of the adventure you were going on. Now, I never got all the way through when I initially played it on the uh, SNES. I did play it on uh, play it later on. I got it on my Wii U as um, when it finally came out to the virtual console. And I've been playing that with my kid from time to time. She thought it was kind of cool. Um, again, though, whenever we play these older retro games, she finds them sort of strange looking. At least playing them on the Wii U, you don't get the fuzziness you get when you actually attach the uh, Super Nintendo to uh, an LCD screen. But uh, it is strange for her to see these games that are not in HD necessarily. But this was a fun game. And it also reminded me of you mentioning how you would like to play the other save files on games. And uh, my save file, 
I don't think ever made it through uh, from one rental to the next. So I would kind of uh, hope for the best and see what would happen. I try to rent it often uh, in a row, but it wouldn't always make it through is what I can remember. Although, again, this was over 20 years ago, so my memory can be fuzzy. What I most enjoyed about Earthbound in the few times that I also rented it was the fact that it had such a strong and singular voice and personality and narrative in the way that the characters talk. I felt like it was a really compelling game because it wasn't, it didn't take itself too seriously in some ways. Obviously it did, but at the same time, there's a lot of um, fun to be had, especially uh, in between characters and in a lot of the sort of um, quests you have to complete to progress the game, right? So I thought that was very interesting um, for a Nintendo property to do too, I think. Yeah, and it was also, it was actually a sequel. Uh, the first game was, uh, these games are called Mother in Japan. And uh, the first game was an NES game. This was the sequel. It was actually called Mother 2. And uh, I think there was a Mother 3, if I'm not mistaken, but I could be wrong. There was a Mother 3, but it was never released in North America. So there's a bunch of groups out there who have um, translated it. So there's a bunch of fans' translations out there. Uh, if you're interested in playing that, you can use the internet to track that down pretty easily. I did play a fan translation of Mother on an NES emulator once, which was kind of strange. It was, it was well translated, if I remember correctly. This was years and years and years ago, but uh, I remember playing it on a, on a PC somewhere. I think it was on Nesticle. Remember that uh, ROM emulator? There was recently a Vice article that covered the history of Nesticle that we'll link to in the show notes, which I found was very interesting. Um, and there's a reason it's called Nesticle, and it kind of goes into that um, too. So I think it's it's super cool. So we'll link to that. So my number four game uh, is a polygonal shooter by the name of Star Fox. So uh, I remember yes. uh, when I uh, when you plug the card in for the first time, and then you start your first mission. Uh, I remember uh, General Pepper saying "Good luck." Like that was the first time I heard a voice in a video game, and it kind of freaked me out the first time because to me, video games didn't have voices. They had music, they had sound effects, but they never had. Um, voices to them so I really really love the game I played it endlessly I actually played the Super Star Fox weekend challenge at uh, the Zellers at Angry when I was younger unfortunately I didn't place or win any prizes but it was my first um, sort of hands-on uh, glimpse into the Star Fox universe and I loved it and I begged my mom to buy it for months and months till she finally relented I think it was because it was on sale honestly and I just I loved the heck out of it. And it's funny because I couldn't put it down. I just, I couldn't wait to play it all the time. I couldn't wait because when you started it, you got to choose all these different paths to different um, uh, sets of planets in order to make it to Andros, the final boss. So I really, really love that. Uh, Angela, did you play that at all? I loved Star Fox. I rented it a lot. Uh, it was the first game with the Super FX chip, which allowed it to be uh, polygonal as it was. Now, if you look at it, it kind of looks janky uh, by today's standards everything's so slow it can't be more than uh, 15 frames per second but back then it was pretty amazing i remember one of the coolest parts of it was uh there were these weird sort of uh, ships with four glowing dots on them and you had to shoot the dots and i remember doing a a barrel roll um, and didn't uh, the little frog say barrel roll in a funny way but, uh, yeah, uh, he said, do a barrel roll in the Nintendo 64 yeah. version. So, uh, and and there was a novel idea of having uh, four uh, animals in the uh, actual lead parts, and Star Fox was pretty cool. So what is your number three? Number three, uh, going back to what we talked to and what spurred this idea, is uh, The Legend of Zelda Link to the Past. Oh, how funny. That's also my number three, actually. Well, great. We can talk about it all together. <laughs> uh, it was the what I consider the true sequel to Zelda and not that weird uh, stepchild that was uh, Side-scrolling Zelda, Zelda 2. 2. Yeah, it was... I Look, I still loved Zelda 2. Uh, I never uh, don't. I don't think I finished it. That's one of the things that made you call me a Zelda charlatan. <laughs> Correct. But uh, th- that I, I watched my friend finish that, if I uh, remember correctly. But does that count as no? It no. doesn't count as me finishing it. I one hundred percent copped that. But uh, this Zelda game, I did finish. The thing is, is I I don't have it. I looked at it. I looked. Uh, I, I, so my my in preparation for today, I did uh, hook up my SNES, uh, and after having to open both my controllers and clean the contacts with alcohol, 
uh, I got them to work. But the only three games I have are three of the five games on here. But uh, Legend of Zelda is not in there. I don't remember if I ever bought it. I know I rented it a bunch of times. I think a friend lent it to me possibly, but I cannot for the life of me remember if I bought it or not. But I did finish it. I watched the entire playthrough today with um, on Cinemassacre. They have a three-part uh, playthrough. Obviously not uh, minute for minute, but it's uh, one of their great playthroughs that they do. They're a lot of fun. Uh, I highly recommend that channel. And uh, it did bring back a lot of memories of playing it. Uh, I remember having to beat that weird uh, lizard monster with the stone mask. Oh, that was with the bombs? A big deal. Yeah. Uh, although they were talking about how you can also use the hammer on that, but the bombs is easier. The hammer's much more difficult, but I've done it. And uh, that was a great game. So what are your memories with this? How, you must have been under 10 years old when this yes. came out, right? So the funny thing about this is that I also didn't own the card. I borrowed it from a friend of mine continually uh, in order to beat it because we would trade uh, cards together. And I remember I lent him... Uh, um, Ken Griffey Jr. baseball once uh, ah. in order to get Legend of Zelda. And the funny thing is, he uh, lent it to another friend of mine. Uh, so when I was over at the other friend's place, it was weird because we were playing it and the custom team I had built with my name on there and my family's name on there was in this cart. So finally I figured out that he had lent Ken Griffey Jr. baseball for another game. So he was using my cart as a proxy trade to a friend of mine, uh, which I wasn't too happy about, but whatever. Um, that would really upset me when my friends did that. Oh, I was I was not happy. After that, I didn't lend him anything. But yeah, I, it was one of the greatest uh, um, adventures, I guess, I that I undertook in a video game. I mean, it was one of the it's one of the greatest action RPGs of all time, right? And the fun thing is, it scales properly in terms of difficulty, right? So you start and you have to go uh, through the castle and you get your sword and you have to hide um, the princess and you uh, then have to go get the medallions and then the into the dark world and i just i loved every moment of it i mean it took me forever to beat because some of the puzzles can be a little tricky right and we don't we didn't live in a digital age where you couldn't just look things up or watch a youtube uh, tutorial or a playthrough and, and get an idea of how to beat things and then even then no, you needed a nintendo power guide yeah and even then power guides were kind of scarce if you didn't know where to get one right so that was a little exactly. bit difficult too um so it was a lot of i i kind of missed that time where you had to work through your ideas like that yeah, that was always fun, and that actually happened to me recently with uh, Breath of the Wild, where we, uh, my child and I were playing, and I couldn't figure something out. Somebody was throwing these blocks of ice at me, and I, and, and I kept having to whack them away. And she's like, Daddy, use this, use your freezing power. I'm like, no, that won't work. He said to hit, bat them away. Okay, I'll try it. And she was totally right. <laughs> uh, what, uh, so I have to ask, like, what is it like playing video games with your kids, right? Because I don't currently have offspring that I know of, so I'm curious for you how how it is to sort of play these games with kids. It's So playing it is really fun. Uh, my daughter has a hard time with uh, the camera controls of a game like Zelda. She's a lot better at ones where it's just, you know, a top view down or where you don't have to worry about uh, the camera control. And I think she's the reverse of me. So I need inverted uh, axis controls. So up is down and down is up for me. And she seems to have a hard time with that. And that's... That's a really weird thing, right? I always have to invert my controls. Some people think that's weird. I don't know if you think that's weird. Uh, she has a hard time with that. But she she's really good at figuring out how things work and what puzzles to do. And she reminds me of myself now in my old age. I've kind of lost that ability. But when I was her age, I was really good at those types of games, uh, including the aforementioned Sierra games where you'd have to figure out puzzles and stuff like that. I was good at kind of thinking outside the box at what to do at certain points. And I will actually um, tell her she should start playing uh, uh, Legend of Zelda Link Between Worlds, which is uh, essentially a spiritual successor to uh, A Link to the Past. Uh, it was actually, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was supposed to be sort of a remake. Yeah, it's a remake uh, with added elements. A lot of added elements. It's, it is quite different, but there's the light and dark world. Um, but... There's certain things that make it uh, a lot more uh, of a modern day game uh, and some certain mechanics they added in there that make it a little more uh, easy to play. Well, you know what? I wouldn't say easy, but it's just, it has modern sensibilities. Uh, going back and playing some of these games, you can tell that it was a different time with different expectations, whereas now 
very few games would, uh, for example, something like Battletoads, where you'd have three lives and then maybe three continues and then you'd never finish the game. That would not happen nowadays. Games are much longer as well, uh, which is actually something I noticed uh, going back to number five. I was playing Super Mario Brothers 3 and I completely forgot how short those levels were. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I guess uh, that's a good segue into number two because my number two is Super Mario World. Oh, interesting. Okay. It uh, was pretty much a revelation, right? From number the jump from number three to number four, which was, it was Super Mario number uh, Super Mario Brothers four. That's actually how it first was presented to me in the that issue of EGM that I mentioned in a previous episode with T two on the cover. They were talking about Super Mario Brothers four in Japan, and they were showing some parts of the game. Right. And it was pretty amazing. You were able to fly in this one as well, but you can uh, keep flying for pretty much as long as you could hold it, as long as you were able to uh, push back. Get the pro- yeah, you get the proper timing uh, on that. And um, it was just amazing. That's another game where uh, I did absolutely everything that needed to be done. I got the 96 worlds with the star. Yes. Is it 94 or 96? 96. I can't remember. 96 exists. And... I did everything. Now, I did get some help from the uh, Nintendo Power Guide, which I got as part of a gift for renewing my Nintendo Power subscription. It was a pack. There was four. I got a a Nintendo Power Guide every four months, and that was one of them, and it really helped. But I still needed actually to do what they asked me to do, and some of those harder levels were crazy. And one of my favorite Easter eggs is if you wait on the Star Road for a while you'll hear the original Super Mario Brothers theme with steel drums, which was pretty cool. I agree. So for me, my number two uh, is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 4, Turtles in Time. Oh yeah, that's a great game. Good choice, Brian. For the first time, my favorite property was able to bring arcade quality graphics um, to the table because I had played the the Hardest Ball's first NES game at a friend's place, and I just... The Ultra Slash Konami game, and I, I got really angry about how hard it got. So for me, Turtle in Time was definitely a game that I speed ran before speed running was truly a thing. So when you beat the game, it gives you your total time. So I'd write those down and try to um, beat myself. And like even as a six-year-old, I was a huge stats nerd. I loved the way that it was animated. I love the fluidity of the character sprites, and being able to really... Uh, clear screens full of foot soldiers was uh, a truly a delight for me as someone who saw the movies, watched the cartoons, read the comic books. So for me, it was truly the first time I'd played a game that lived up to the hype in terms of uh, being a property that was adapted for the Super Nintendo. It had those great scaling uh, effects of when you would throw the foot soldiers into the screen. And I think that was something you had to do to beat a boss at one point. Yeah, you had to beat Shredder the first time, and then he jumps into the time travel screen, right? So you had to... Um, so from the perspective, uh, you see Shredder kind of as an outline and he has this little gun. He's trying to shoot you as you're on the screen, trying to throw foot soldiers and crack his screen open to get to him. That was a great game. I, I liked it quite a bit. And it, and it really showcased the Nintendo, uh, power, uh, at that point, the, um, scaling, the rotation, all those effects. Sometimes those effects were really cheesy. Uh, and that's something we could talk about one day about, uh, the super Nintendo versus the Genesis and uh, how they each handled their uh, strengths and weaknesses. And uh, that was clearly a strength of the Super Nintendo. Great. So do you want to get into some honorable mentions? Yes. So I have a few. Uh, Two of them are the uh, fighting games that I played a lot with friends. This was a lot of fun. We would get together, do these fighting game tournaments. Uh, So the games are Mortal Kombat 2 and Street Fighter 2 Turbo. Uh, the the original Street Fighter on the Super Nintendo was pretty amazing. It was as close to arcade as one could possibly get at that point. There were a few differences, but it was really amazing. But then uh, the second version that came out, after the poor Genesis uh, version came out, and it was touted as being better than the Nintendo one, and then Nintendo just uh, released... Well, it was, it was Capcom that released a, a better version on the Super Nintendo. Uh, was sped up and had all the fancy features from the uh, Turbo Arcade version. And, and a couple of extra characters. Yeah, it was uh, pretty great. That's the one I had. I remember that was a big deal because it was an, a 16 meg cart, right. if I'm not mistaken. So I have I have Super Street Fighter 2 Turbo on my list, but I have the original Mortal Kombat, not the second or third one. Oh, the original Mortal Kombat was... I didn't like that game at all. 
What didn't you like about it versus the second one? It was just, it felt so slow. And the Genesis one, okay, it's not even because there was blood or whatever on the Genesis one. The Genesis one also, I didn't like that much either. So the Super Nintendo one looked way better than the Genesis one. It just, it felt slow. And the sweat effect was, it just, it tainted the whole thing by Nintendo wanting to not sully themselves with uh, the blood on that one. But Mortal Kombat 2, I liked it a lot because it was so faithful to the arcade and it really made the Genesis version look bad. I had So I, I was never a fanboy of either console. I had both. Um, I got a Genesis first and then I got the Super Nintendo and I, I like games on everything, on both of them, right? So I never really was into the whole fanboy console wars thing. I just had, I was lucky enough to have both and I whatever game I thought was better on the other one was, was uh, the one I buy. And that, that's something I've kind of carried forward to today. I all I've had an Xbox 360. I had a PlayStation 3. I didn't get an Xbox One, but at this point, the the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One are pretty close together. But uh, that's besides the point. I like Mortal Kombat 2 mainly because it was so close to the arcade, and Mortal Kombat 1 was not that close. I really enjoyed Mortal Kombat 1 for me because there are less characters, so you can take time and actually master each character a lot more easily. Okay, well, I see that. Uh, which I really, really enjoyed. So I, I actually I played as Sony. I played as Kano. I played, you know, I, I took my time and played as each of the characters there. So I mastered the hell out of Katana. Right. Was that her name? <laughs> yeah. Oh, Wow. She had she was the ones with the fans and stuff. I used to get you stuck in that corner and destroy you. <laughs> so what else is on your honorable mentions list? Uh, Castlevania Four. Yep. The, I always like the Castlevania games, and um, I have this on my Wii U Virtual Console. It's um, it was pretty amazing looking uh, at the time. You came, you uh, Simon was it Simon in that one? I can never I can never keep these straight. But yeah, it was it was yeah that one was Simon. And and he was like twice or three times the size as his sprite was on the uh, the Nintendo versions. And I liked all the Nintendo versions, uh, but this one was uh, pretty amazing. I uh, I had a good time with it. Uh, I don't think I finished it, I, but although it was easier th- than the original Castlevania, which I did finish, shockingly enough, but uh, I don't think I spent enough time with it. It was just a rental a few times. Donkey Kong Country? Yeah, that's on my tube. That, is, that was my number five, and I switched it out. Um, I I think Super Mario All Stars has more of a nostalgic value to me. Uh, Donkey Kong Country at the time was incredible. It had the whole silicon graphics things going for it, and those pre-rendered sprites, which uh, looked incredible at the time. And uh, Nintendo had to do something because the whole 32-bit thing was coming. Remember when bits were a thing? Yes. Um, and I remember initially seeing Donkey Kong Country again because of Nintendo Power. I got this weird VHS tape sent to me in the mail once, and it was uh, showing off uh, the making of Donkey Kong Country, and it was really extreme 90s. Go on YouTube, watch it. It's so 90s, you're going to just explode. (laughs) So for me, I also had Chrono Trigger. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is on my uh, list of shame. Oh, you have not played it yet. I have not played it. I never have played it. And I I don't know is it available on on uh one of the virtual consoles somehow? Yes, it, uh, the PlayStation one. Oh, really? I think so, yeah. I bought Chrono Cross. I'm not sure if Chrono Trigger is available though. Uh, I don't know. So Chrono Cross was a place the PlayStation game. It was the it was the follow-up. Yeah, it was, Chrono yeah, exactly. One. Okay. So on there I also have um Super Metroid, Super Bomberman, uh, Mega Man X, Contra 3, and NBA Jam. Oh, yeah, NBA Jam. I that completely, I completely forgot about that. I love that. I love that game. I had that too. I See, all these games, I, I have no idea what happened to my uh, Super NES carts. I have no idea where they ended up. I had so many, and now I only have three. Three of them uh, from, my, from my top list. One of them I have not mentioned yet, and that would be my number one. So I guess we could all go on to there now. Yeah, go for it. Let's do our number ones. You just mentioned it. It's Super Metroid. My, it is number one on this list. It's number one on my all-time list of my favorite games ever. Uh, it's the game that introduced us to the Metroidvania type of game where you would uh, gain new powers, opening up other parts. And it's something that struck me when I played... Uh, my brain is buffering right now. But what's the game? What's the Castlevania game? Symphony of the Night. 
Yes. Wow, that's sad. Uh, old man brain. But yes, that uh, when I first... I had not heard of Symphony of the Night when it came out. I was not really following games that much. I had bought a PlayStation, and I saw, oh, look, Castlevania, $30. Let's buy it. It was a reduced price game because it had been out for a while. I went home with a bunch of friends. We started it. None of us were really following games at the time, but we had all just bought PlayStations and popped it in, and I was amazed by how good it was. I actually just did a replay of it uh, during the holidays, actually. Oh, wow. And, and it just it reminded me, I kept saying, this reminds me of Super Metroid so much, and that's my favorite game, and this game's really good. And as good as a Symphony of the Night is, I still love Super Metroid. Samus is one of my favorite uh, video game characters, and I popped it in this morning and played it, and uh, the nostalgia came back in a flash. And something I'd totally forgotten, you had mentioned the voices in uh, Star Fox, and Super Metroid starts off with a voiceover, and maybe we'll put that in the show notes, but uh, it's, it's not great <laughs> when you hear it, but it it's just kind of gives you a background on the game. And I totally forgot this too. They, when the game starts, it shows it as Metroid 3. Yes. And then it shows Super Metroid. I totally forgot about that. And it is a direct sequel. Uh, and Nintendo has this weird habit of making Nintendo games that aren't sequels to themselves. Uh, the first three Metroids were, but now the more recent Metroids are weird, like remakes of stuff. Uh, they're still great, but, well, not all of them. Uh, and Zelda never has a really good uh, timeline. It's a little convoluted, but they kind of explain that with it being a recurring myth. Anyway, uh, back to Super Metroid. The the intro itself was really great. You went, kind of went to go back to where you were. And uh, I played through that opening sequence of when uh, the Metroid gets kidnapped and when you end up on the planet and see the old uh, places where you had been and uh, revisit those. Uh, the music's incredible in that game. Uh, that's something we haven't mentioned too much about these games is the music. Uh, the Super Nintendo had amazing music at the time and Super Metroid is one of the greatest. I definitely concur with the music in there and I think that um, of the top five, probably part of the reasons I listed these as the top five is definitely um, the music does play uh, uh, a little bit of a helping hand in ranking these. Like, for example, the arcade upbeat feel of Turtles in Time really gets to you very quickly when it um, comes out of your uh, TV speakers. And the different themes for Legend of Zelda, as well as um, Star Fox and even, you know, uh, Mystic Quest, even though it was kind of a crappy meaty keyboard come to life it was still enjoyable um to a certain extent i love those yeah the the orchestra sounds uh an honorable mention if we're talking about music should be act razor one of the uh one of the strangest but most compelling games to come out of the super nintendo a weird sim uh, city-esque uh slash side-scrolling adventure games i think it's super interesting and the music, that music was uh, something that Nintendo held up above all uh, other games as being some of the best uh, music out there. It had that w- interesting symphony-type sound. And that's the thing about the Genesis. I mean, you could have had all sorts of fanboy wars with that, but uh, no Genesis fanboy, unless he was completely deluded, would tell you that the Genesis had better music than the uh, Super Nintendo. Now, in some cases, the Genesis had amazing music. One of my favorite Genesis games was Streets of Rage, and that had incredible music by Yuzu Koshiro. Is that who it was? I think so, right? Yes. And uh, that's some great music in that game. I still remember the song from Level 4 in Streets of Rage being one of my favorite uh, gaming tunes ever. Great. So my number one is one of your top five, actually. So for me, it's Super Mario World, right? Well, that's a pretty easy number one, too, right? It's, uh, it's, it's up there with one of the best games of all time, too. I think it's true what they say about never being able to get over your first true love. And to me, the second, because uh, we got a, the Super Nintendo for Christmas one, you know, and that was the packing game. And I remember putting it in, and that game was just really just... I spent all of my free time, free time obsessing about it for about a year, trying to discover all of its secrets. I mean, I even dreamed about it at one point. I remember there were a couple levels that I couldn't figure out how to beat the uh, second exit tune i just i just dreamt about it and i obsessed about it um the game itself is one of the finest side-scrolling adventures one could undertake and i think it invites you to return to it over and over which i think uh both ninja turtles as well as super mario world kind of uh did that to me i kept going back to these games even after i'd beaten them right because i figured out how to get to bowser's castle pretty easily 
but trying to discover all the nuances and secrets and star roads and things like that. Like I just, I loved that idea of, of continually trying to discover things. That's, that's something I, uh, I'm enjoying about having these discussions with you because it brings me back to the, those feelings, which I don't get anymore playing video games. Uh, so actually, well, that's not true. I guess with, with uh, Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, I'm sort of feeling that. But the fun thing is I'm seeing it through my daughter playing these games and she is coming up with all these interesting ideas and she's imagining uh, what's going on in the game and thinks about certain things. And it's, that's uh, a lot of fun for me to see that. So uh, once you have kids, you'll be able to live through it again with, uh, with your children. Well, I'm not planning on doing things like that uh, all too soon. I th- also, the only <laughs> nitpick I have about the game is for years, I thought I'd beaten every path, yet on the save file, it only showed 96, right? And not 100. Um, and only later did I realize that the 96 was, it meant 96 exits, not 96%. So I actually, and at oh, times yeah. pre-internet, I spent a lot of time after getting the 96 searching for the four missing ones and never finding them. Didn't the star tip you off? No, it didn't. That's the whole thing. Huh. I just, I no, can't. I, I figured that out right away. And I, I consider you smarter than me. Yeah, but you got to remember it was like eight or nine, right? So. Yeah. Even eight-year-old Brian, though, sometimes. <laughs> Thanks, Angelo. So it's been fun visiting our, our top fives and going down this road. Like I said, it took me forever to sort of narrow this down. Um, and I mean, my honorable mentions could have contained another 15 games very easily. Oh, yeah. Easy. Easy. No problem. Super Nintendo is I would have a hard time not saying that it's my favorite console of all time. Oh, for me by far it is. I can definitely easily say that Um, even now. I mean, I've bought a lot of these games on the virtual on the Wii Virtual Console already. Like I beat Legend of Zelda a couple of years ago just because I wanted to play it so badly. Yeah, that's... uh, And if there's one regret I have is not keeping track of where my, all my Super Nintendo games went. And I'm really happy that uh, Mario All-Stars, Super Mario World, and Super Metroid were safely with my uh, Super Nintendo when I did find them at my parents' house a few years ago. But I have no idea where all my other cartridges went. No idea. Now, if anybody uh, finds these cartridges, please uh, email me and let me know where you found them. Double density. Welcome back to Double Density. And we have... Uh, an episode of one of our favorite segments coming up, and that is Alien Cinema. So this edition of Alien Cinema, we'll be discussing the 2015 documentary Australian Skies by director Don Mears. So Don Mears actually appears on screen as a subject uh, in his documentaries. And it mainly focuses on this guy, Damien John Nod, who uh, is from Australia. He's from New South Wales. And he uh, claims to have over 2,000 images of extraterrestrial activity that he's mostly shot in and around his property in Australia. And so uh, the documentary goes back and forth in between. Um, so the documentary crew meets up with Damien and the, um, in Queensland and the explore around hoping to see something. And then it kind of goes back into, uh, Damien's story and shows some of the videos and footage and still images that he's, uh, picked up too. So it is a 75 minute documentary, which I feel is, oh, I don't know, 60 minutes too long for this subject. Yeah. I, I so before we start, I just want to apologize for, uh... <laughs> Making you watch this. So this I, was on you. It popped up and yeah. So it popped up in my next Netflix queue just after we had started talking about doing this sort of thing. Uh, I think we had just started the podcast, maybe, or it was before we started it. But we were looking into starting to talk about this stuff um, through microphones and making people hear it. And I thought, well, it might be a fun idea to watch a movie or a documentary about this type of thing. So this one popped up. It wasn't highly recommended by Netflix, but it was there. It was there, exactly. And it seemed sort of well shot. I mean, the director seems to kind of know what he's doing, but it it falls into a lot of the uh, tropes that these types right. of things fall into. And uh, I'll, I'll let you talk about that. So you make a very good point, actually, 
Um, so I want to shout out the three people who probably worked hardest on this film, and that is the post-production visual effects person, the editor, as well as the sound person, because I feel like those uh, those three elements are what made the movie, right? Uh, there were multiple tracks on there that sounded... Do you know that Robbie Robertson song, Somewhere Down the Crazy River? Do you know that song? It's an 80s kind of MOR song. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it sounds familiar to me. And uh, so at one point uh, during one of these montages where they're out in the field with Damien looking for UFOs in the middle of the day, they um, they have a song and it's like this person's repeating, I don't know what it is, like a grocery list or something. It was just this really weird thing where uh, it was kind of faux edgy music uh, to accompany the quest to find things in the sky that clearly weren't UFOs. And so that's the thing. I I took notes as I was watching this because I figured, okay, we'll we'll probably talk about it on the show. Uh, and one of my notes is twenty five minutes in, everything looks like something that can be explained. <laughs> and at one point, Damien says that um, that he's that if if he's crazy, then his camera's crazy. But a lot of the stuff caught on the videos he's holding up as evidence look like bags caught in a breeze. Um, or maybe balloons or something, but they don't look like any sort of weird object that would make me freak out and want to uh, go onto a documentary and talk about my experiences. Yeah, there's, there's some. Anyways, I think I'll start at the beginning, right? So I think uh, one of the telling tales. So spoiler alert for people who don't really care. They don't find anything uh, on their journey with Damien. <laughs> But it's kind of funny when they um, they pick him up from the train station and they explain that they were planning to go to his stomping grounds but couldn't secure a scouting location, which I thought was weird because they could have just shot in his house, but whatever. So they go to Queensland and they look around. And um, one of the biggest problems I have with most of Damien's footage is that it shakes so much that you can't get a sense of the ship, quote-unquote, perspective, right? Because of the fact that he doesn't own as something as simple as a monopod. He can't even just allow the camera to sit still and let the um, spaceship or object or bag or bird move through the frame properly. And that's what yeah, drives he zooms me. in a lot too, right? Yeah, there's a lot of zoom in and that's why it's so shaky. Whereas if he owned something like a tripod or a monopod, he could have easily used that to be able to uh, properly frame these things. So the other thing is that obviously the things he's seeing exist because they're on video. The thing is, they're all normal things, or they seem to be all normal. There's nothing out of the ordinary that would prompt me to uh, think otherwise. Yeah, there's very little there that I actually, like, of the footage that he presented, and I was watching very intently because I knew I was going to be able to talk about this at one point, but I was watching this and I just, there's nothing there that I was like, that is the smoking gun of the entire thing. He is right, I am wrong. There's nothing there that can either be explained or talked about or suggested um, that it doesn't, you know, correlate to something Earth-based. Yeah, and he says he's... Another thought that popped in into my head is was they were, they were drones, and almost as if he had psychic powers, he popped up and said, they're not drones, uh, because he says those are noisy. And he says anything made by humans is noisy, uh, and that just brought me back this back to saying bags and balloons are silent. He's also never driven a Prius at a low speed because those are very quiet. I know it's like nobody has uh, Teslas in uh, in Australia, and no nobody's ever used supersonic, super silent jet planes either. But uh, he also has a thing with black helicopters. Yes, he says that. So he has a thing with both black helicopters as well as men in black who apparently have approached him. So I thought those were U.S.-based, but I guess Australia also has their own uh, equivalent of the Men in Black. I guess anywhere where there's a tailor shop, there will be Men in Black. Uh, yeah, the the. so I don't remember where he says this at what point in the video, because uh, I, I watched this so long ago, well, a month and a half ago, that seems like years ago to me. Uh, and he always he talks about how the government intervenes, of course, and they steal things from him, and there uh, there are Men in Black that do this. So what's the deal with these UFO experiencers that always have the government intervening with them? I feel like it creates a really great narrative, right? The, the out to get me narrative, right? And it's very easy because once again, you, you can't disprove someone's encounter with the men in black, can you? No, it's, it's, uh, it's something that they can say and it's possible they saw a couple of guys in black suits, but 
that's oftentimes when people start going and veering off in that direction is where I start thinking that, okay, they probably experienced something, but it wasn't interesting enough. So for them to get a little bit more attention, they've kind of embellished it a bit. And a lot of these people will always say, oh no, but I don't want attention. Then why are you in a documentary? Well, well why are you announcing your UFO findings too, right? I was listening to a podcast last night. I don't remember which one, but someone was you? talking. Yeah, I, I know. I was listening to something random and I, I forgot wow. to text you. Uh, was it the Double Density podcast? <laughs> no, it was not. I don't listen to my own podcast for okay. more than uh, you know QA purposes. But I was listening to this podcast and this guy was going on and on about how your reputation is the only thing you have in the UFO community. And I thought that was really funny. Um, sort of thinking about the idea of these characters that we've been talking about, right? So this Damien Knott yeah. guy is obviously a character. And how weird is it that as soon as he leaves his home, the UFOs do not appear anymore? Of course. They know where he is. And that's something, actually, that he mentions because towards the end of the documentary, he drops the bombshell of all bombshells. He's got a chip embedded in him. <laughs> I just felt like it's, it's literally like it's a tower of cards being built only to have reality blow that away, I think. It's, it's as soon as he said that, I think I stood up and said, oh, of course he does. Well, just it's really just a grab bag, right? Like it's kind of a greatest hits of UFO culture, right? Like, um, he has he claimed to have been abducted. Let me let me look at this. I no, well, yeah, that's because otherwise, how would he have a chip? Or is that the government that get put in the chip? That's the thing I don't understand. Uh, was it the government that gave him the chip? Was it the aliens? So apparently, it's uh, the aliens. So uh, at, this is post documentary. He reported being abducted. Okay, all right, that, I'm not surprised. So yeah, so this guy has over 2,000 UFO uh, images and videos, which is uh, an insane amount until you start to think uh, how many shaky bags in the wind can you find, right? Which is more than zero. Uh, so a couple of things that made me laugh is that part where they're going down that river together. So at one point they're like, let's go explore this sort of remote area and maybe we'll see stuff there. And uh, they're on these, they're kayaking down and, you know, like, oh, what is, at one point they get like, a, there's like a jump scare almost like, oh, what is that? And yeah. that made me laugh. Well, there too. were a few jump scares. Remember the garbage can incident? Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, that, but I mean, the, like, there's so many of these that exist within the film itself and the film's only seven, five minutes, right? So you got to keep the attention somehow. So kudos once again to the post-prod team and the editor for making something out of almost nothing at this point, I think. The, they, yeah, they had a lot of stretching to do with this thing. and. Uh, there was an earlier scene uh, where they were filming drones, and at one point they, I can't, I think they were filming drones to prove that his videos could not be drones. Yeah, or that's right. Like that. So, which is a weird way to do it because you and I were talking about this, and you and I had both said, had we done this documentary, what we would have done is we would have used drones to simulate some of the stuff he had seen, uh, and then said, you know, do you think these are UFOs? What are those? In order to prove that. Perhaps what he's saying is not entirely truthful, but instead they do a complete 180 where they fly drones to prove his point. Yeah, that's the opposite of science. And at one point, something flew by the drone. They f everybody freaked out that was there, but it looked like a leaf. It could have been a dragonfly. It could have been anything. <laughs> it could have been our favorite thing. You know what I'm talking about. Well, that, of course, is rods. We need a rods button or something. <laughs> a bell yeah <laughs> maybe i'll work one in post but yeah it, it could have been literally anything and they don't even have footage of it so the, that's the thing is is they have to stretch to explain what they're seeing is something paranormal or ufological ufological it's a good word yeah did you like anything about this no no apart from the fact that i knew we'd be talking about it and that would be a fun conversation. That's what kept me going, Brian. To me, the best part about it was how short it was. It wasn't uh, documentary length, which is perfect. It wasn't feature length, sorry, which I thought really worked out well uh, for me. That's always a good thing. Sit there for an extra 15, 20 minutes listening uh, and watching this because to me, there's almost nothing there. And I mean, you can easily go online and take a look at some of this guy's footage. If he invested in a monopod, I think we'd be able to debunk a lot more of his images. Um, as for the chip embedded in him, I don't know what that is or if it's even true because they weren't even to, you can't even prove that. So no, you can't. The, the director, what, what did he say at the end? He seemed sort of not too excited about Damien. Yeah. He was kind of like, it is what it is. I think was kind of the way he, he put it pretty much. So 
Yeah, yeah well. It, it wasn't a thrilling prospect, let's put it that way. No, there, there are much better UFO documentaries. And uh, on behalf of the Double Density podcast, we're here to tell you, uh, you can kind of pass on this one unless you're really like thirsting for uh, Australian UFO, um, an Australian UFO documentary. We actually didn't even talk about the other weirdos in the in the movie, right? There were a couple of other people they interviewed. Right. So there were a couple of people who had visited Damien's um, uh, compound, I guess would be the best word to put it, and uh, said that they also saw weird things in the sky that they couldn't explain. Like they were lending him credence. And so what I was thinking is if they could have interviewed these people who live in Queensland, I'm um, sorry, New South Wales, in Dunedin, New South Wales and around, um, why couldn't they just shoot at his place of living once again? Yeah, this is a weird thing. Look, if you want to watch a documentary about somebody who sees a lot of UFOs, I highly recommend The, the Curse of the Man Who Sees UFOs or something like that, which is another movie uh, that I think uh, we should watch and talk about again. Uh, but this one, yeah, not so great. So out of five green slash gray men, what do you give it? I give it one human. Oh, Oh, I give it one garbage bag. <laughs> one the garbage bag that moved on its own? Yeah. <laughs> the garbage bag that caused the entire movie to exist. Yeah, it was not not a good film. Not So aesthetically, it was competent. Um, but I think content-wise and narrative-wise, there wasn't anything there that worked at all um, no. in terms of making it a compelling documentary. And I mean, once again, if you want to look up this guy, Damien Not N-O-T-T, and sort of see what he's all about, we offer you the chance to do so. Google him. Google him, take a look at his evidence, take a look at his interviews, try to understand what's going on there, because I really, I don't think there's much there beyond uh, a man uh, fooling locals. Um, I mean, that's just my opinion, but yeah. He's trying to make a name for himself in the in ufology, probably, as a, an experiencer. I hate that word. Uh, and j- just going back to what we're talking about with the garbage bag, there was a scene in the movie where they're filming in uh, low light, so it's in that whole green uh, night vision aesthetic. And uh, a garbage bag sort of makes a crazy sound, and then they freak out. But do they not realize they're in Australia, where there's all kinds of crazy things that happen with weird animals? Yeah, well, giant, so, giant spiders that kill you. Yeah, so th- they should just chalk that up to being living in Australia. <laughs> I like the idea of just blaming the, uh, the country itself for its, uh, um, and its odd singular climate, I guess, would be the best way of putting it in order to be able to sort of... Uh, I love Australia, by the way. I'd love to visit, to be honest. It's just, um, it seems like a beautiful place to visit. Uh, but it seems like there's some crazy animals and insects over there. What I also think is I don't think you would like Australia specifically because of that, though. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not too worried about uh, spiders and bugs and stuff. They actually don't bother me that much, but the ones in Australia, there's, there's this crazy YouTube video of a dad trying to capture this giant spider in a, in a takeout uh, container. And uh, <laughs> what happens uh, leads to something pretty funny. And I think maybe we'll post that in the show notes. Let's go for it. Yeah. So uh, this is Double Density's Alien Cinema suggesting do not check out Australian Skies. This has been episode 18 of the Double Density Podcast. Tune in next week as we delve into the mystery of the Mothman, paranormal being, or just a really confused janitor. As always, you can check us out on Twitter at double underscore density, facebook.com slash double density podcast, and double density podcast on Instagram. Bye. Bye.